strange stories of peculiar people and extraordinary events throughout history. This is Notorious Narratives. Welcome to Notorious Narratives. I'm Jen. And I'm Robin. And tonight I'm going to talk to you about patent medicine. Okay. If you don't know what that is, we'll get there, everyone. Maybe you've heard the term snake oil salesman. Probably in reference. Snake oil salesman? Snake oil salesman. Say that five times fast. I won't do that. I've had some wine. Snake oil salesman. Jesus. So maybe you've heard the term snake oil salesman, probably in reference to someone that is an untrustworthy sort, maybe a con man, someone willing to do anything to sell you on a product. I don't know why, but my first thought is to timeshare salespeople. (laughs) Like when you go on vacation... And they just like push. Oh, and they push. Yeah. They're like, come to the this first meeting. Time, the first and, time I went to Mexico. Oh, come this way. Right. And talk to us for an hour where and you're we like, could I have just, just sat by the pool for the next hour. Want a margarita. Okay. But what you may not know is the root of the term. Well, in this episode, I'm going to tell you about the rise and fall of the patent medicine industry, commonly known as snake oil, and how it gave rise to the modern advertising and marketing as well as the FDA. And more importantly, you may be surprised to hear the number of things that were considered medicine that are still on the market today. Whoa. A patent medicine is a term used for an over-the-counter medicine that is usually heavily advertised as a remedy for a variety of ailments. Mm -hmm. And these claims are made with little or no basis in fact or science and have nothing to do with the actual effectiveness of the product. Originating in England, the term patent medicine comes from the practice of marketing elixirs to the public with an endorsement from the royalty known as a quote-unquote letter of patent or a patent of royal favor. These were typically gotten by people who were in, in with the royals. So these medicines and this concept made the trip to America in the 18th century. Mm-hmm. Some of the first patent medicines seen in the United States exported from England were Daffy's Elixir Salutis, for coughing and griping, and Dr. Bateman's pectoral drops, and John Hooper's female pills. <laughs> female pills. Yes, indeed, I said it. A pectoral drop. A pectoral drop. I, I'm imagining something sort of like Vicks mus- Vapor Rub. Oh, I was going to say like a muscle, a muscle relaxer, right? Or like, I don't know, like a maybe like a menthol on the chest or, I mean, I don't know. None of them were medicine. <laughs> so let's just get that out there. Mm-hmm. So those are some of the first English patent medicines to arrive in the United States. The second half of the 19th century is considered to be the golden age of American patent medicines. Rapid increases in industry and manufacturing, urban living, advertising in national newspapers and magazines, and the absence of drug regulation all contributed to a boom in the production and consumption of patent medicines. Many people turned to patent medicines out of fear and distrust of contemporary medical practices. So let's just take a moment. Mm-hmm. And think about what medicine was like in, let's say, 1860. Not an incredibly trustworthy time. Surgery was done with little to no anesthesia. There was little to no idea of what germ theory was. Yeah, sanitation, not so well. I mean, like, basically they had bloodletting and surgery. Those are kind of the two things. Like, Mm -hmm. we can cut it out of you or we can suck it out of you. Other than that, we're kind of, like, stuck. So not a great time for medicine. So this is a period um, known as heroic medicine, in which extreme techniques such as bloodletting and the use of harsh purgatives and emetics were often employed by physicians. So they're like, we can suck it out of you with leeches. We can take it out from your blood, like out of your veins directly with needles, or we can make you vomit and shit your brains out. 
These are like your options. Oh my goodness. All right. Oh wow. So all of the options for medicine make you feel like crap. Imagine imagine being given those options though. I'd be like, oh, you know. Where do you go? I'm going with leeches, I I think. Really don't want to shit my brains out. But just, you know, I've got I've got a I've got oh, a paper due. Well, I'm, I am afraid of needles, so I guess a leech, maybe. Yeah. Right. How do you choose yeah. amongst these, right? So it doesn't it's not too surprising that people turn to anything else. Mm-hmm. Working before the advent of germ theory at the end of the nineteenth century, regular physicians had very few therapies that could compete with the patent medicine industry's promise of easy health in a bottle. Okay, so don't get it twisted. You need to understand that just because it's called a patent medicine does not mean that these were patented by the government, um, at least not in the way that you think of it today. For one thing, the patenting of chemical compounds was not practiced in the United States until 1920. And honestly, even if even if patenting was an option, most of these people who produced this medicine would not have allowed it. You see, in order to patent a product, you must disclose its ingredients, which they would never have wanted to do mm-hmm. for a lot of reasons. Most producers of these medicines were small, family-run operations that used ingredients quite similar to their competitors. Vegetable extracts laced with ample doses of alcohol. It's so crazy. It's like 1920. Um, uh, it's <laughs> It wasn't that long ago. It's crazy. If it's Less only, than 100 yeah. years ago. In my mind, patent, in terms of medicine should have been done way, way before. There wasn't really that much medicine before. I mean, that, there, yeah, but this is before they, antibiotics. They already patented some like ridiculous things. Toilet paper was patented before that. You know, mm-hmm. like the uh, actually a wine refrigerator was patented before that. Really? <laughs> yes. And it's like it's, it's insane on how medicine 1920. Yep. So vegetable extracts laced with ample doses of alcohol. That was the most common set of ingredients. While most had quite similar ingredients, it would have been impossible to actually patent them, and it would have crushed the million-dollar industry. Mm -hmm. These medications were also known as proprietary medications, basically that their formulations were specific to the company that they were sold under. Also called quack medicines, which... Bunch of quack. You know. Yeah. Everyone, I think, knows what you mean when you say quack medicine. Um, It's not just all about enemas. (laughs) So, um, that I guess that's crack medicine. <laughs> different, a different act. A different kind of act. Anyway, quack medicines could be deadly since there was no regulation on their ingredients. These were medicines with questionable effectiveness whose contents were usually kept secret. These patent medicines were supposedly able to cure just about everything. They were openly sold and claimed to cure and prevent venereal diseases, tuberculosis, and even cancer. These remedies were openly sold to the public and claimed to cure and prevent pretty much any ailment known to man, including colic in infants, indigestion, dyspepsia, and female complaints. Female complaints medications female were, complaints. were very popular. Um, and they offered hope for women to find relief from their monthly oh, discomfort. Thank you so much. Thank you. It's like, don't worry, I took a Motrin. It's all good. One claimed to cure cholera, neuralgia, epilepsy, scarlet fever, necrosis, mercurial eruptions, paralysis, hip diseases, chronic abscesses, and female complaints. Paralysis and female complaints. Seems like a real wide array of symptoms. That's great. One medication, known as William Radham's microbe killer, 
uh, a product sold widely on both sides of the Atlantic in the 1890s and the early 1900s had the bold claim of curing all diseases and prominently embossed that directly on the bottle. Ebenezer Sibley, also known as Dr. Sibley, in the late 18th and early 19th Great century. Name, by the way. Great name. <laughs> In the late 18th and early 19th century in Britain, went so far as to advertise that his solar tincture was able to restore life in the event of sudden death. Resurrection? Zombieism? He actually said that he could cure death. (laughs) In short, there was a medicine for every ailment, and some medicines could cure and prevent dozens at a time. Every manufacturer published long lists of testimonials that described their product curing all sorts of human ailments. Fortunately for both makers and users, the illnesses they claimed that they had cured were invariably self-diagnosed, and the claims of the writers to have been healed of cancer or tuberculosis by the medicine should be considered with that in mind. They also cured TB. Oh, TB. Yeah. Female complaints, cancer, (laughs) death. I mean, they can cure anything. Along with these, Wild claims the types of ingredients that were in these elixirs is no less shocking. There was an air of mystery that surrounded the ingredients, and that was by design of their producers. One theme that was often used was the idea of native medicines. Producers used the widespread belief that the natives were more in tune with nature and had an infinite knowledge of traditional herbal remedies. Another benefit of claiming traditional native origins is that it was nearly impossible to disprove. A good example of this is the story behind Dr. Morse's Indian root pills, which was the mainstay of the Comstock patent medicine business. According to the text that was on every box of pills, Dr. Morse was a trained medical doctor who enriched his education by traveling extensively throughout Asia, Africa, and Europe. He supposedly lived among the American Indians for three years, during which time he discovered the healing property of various plants and roots, and he eventually combined into Dr. Morris's Indian root pills. No one knows if Dr. If Dr. Morse actually existed. I was going to say, I was like... <laughs> <laughs> Other products claimed exotic ingredients, such as tropical fruits and hard-to-acquire roots from swamps. And sugar. Yeah. Well, still others chose the opposite approach by touting whatever the newest magnificent scientific breakthrough was. One such discovery was electromagnetism. Consumers were invited to heal their ailments with the power of electricity. After Luigi Galvani's experiments, as we had talked about in our Frankenstein episode, Mm -hmm. after his experiments showed how electricity influenced muscles, they took these ideas and they found their way into the patent medicine industry. Suddenly, devices to electrify the body were being sold, and elixirs claiming to attract electric energy were also on sale. Devices such as the Violet Ray Machine and the Electric Fez. I'm sorry. Yes, ma'am. Fez? As in the hat? Yes, (gasps) ma'am. And what do you think that might be for? Robin, I need you to wager a guess. If you're going to use an electric fez to cure an ailment, what ailment would it be? A headache, migraine. See, that seems logical. Is it for but, blindness? Uh, but, you know, like, I think if you were going cold. to use it to cure a headache, it would need to work pretty quickly. Otherwise, it would be disproven, right? Mm-hmm. So why not cure something like baldness? So it was the electric fez was basically Rogaine? It was sold to balding men. To electrify the hair follicles. 
Oh my god. <laughs> fun oh man <sighs> i'm just imagining these guys being electrocuted with a fez on their head like oh, oh, oh i just need my hair oh, 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 ouch ah, ah, i just need my hair <laughs> anyway so by the end of the patent medicine golden era these medicines contained radioactive ingredients such as radium and uranium so what was really in these elixirs you ask shockingly some of the medicines actually did work but often it was because of their incredibly dangerous ingredients. For instance, many infant soothers contained opium. Yes. Oh boy. You heard me right. <laughs> opium was at the time perfectly legal and used in medication to soothe newborns. Other products such as cocaine were used as well, which were also legal at the time. Mm -hmm. While many products claimed to use exotic herbs, often felt the effects from procaine and grain alcohol. While many of the pain relievers were in fact quite effective due to the use of opiates rather than roots and herbs, these opiates were also used to treat coughs and diarrhea. And if you don't know, opiates definitely constipate you. So they would definitely work to cure diarrhea. Those who became dependent on these had no idea what was actually inside them. They thought they were these herbal remedies rather than highly addictive opiates. They thought they were taking a natural remedy, not something that they were going to become addicted to. But people were aware at the time that these opiates were addictive. Um, at this time, people already knew the dangers of ingesting things like opium. At this point, people were already concerned about opium dens and the areas in which these kinds of things were consumed. Yeah. So they would not have readily purchased opium if it was on the label. Another controversial ingredient in most of these medications was alcohol. And many of these products escaped banning during Prohibition because they were labeled as medicines. Mm -hmm. Many of these medicines were, in fact, liqueurs of various sorts, flavored with herbs said to have medicinal properties. Some examples include cannabis indica, the low-growing variants of cannabis with a high level of THC, peruna, was a famous prohibition tonic weighing in at around 18% pure grain alcohol. Oh, wow. <laughs> also known as Jamaican ginger. It was ordered to change its formula by prohibition officials. But to fool a chemical test, some vendors added a toxic chemical, tricresyl phosphate, an organophosphate compound that produced delayed neuropathy and chronic nerve damage syndrome, similar to that of certain nerve agents, such as Agent Orange. Unwary imbibers suffered a form of paralysis that came to be known as Jake Leg. Clark Stanley, also known as the Rattlesnake King, produced Stanley's snake oil, publicly processing rattlesnakes at the World's Columbian Exposition in Chicago, the World's Fair in Chicago. Mm -hmm. His liniment, then seized and tested by the federal government in 1917, was found to contain mineral oil, 1% fatty oil, red pepper, turpentine, and camphor. This is not too unlike modern capsaicin or camphor liniments. So basically, it was just um, basically Bengay. Cool so, and heat. Yeah. The original formulation of Coca-Cola used cocoa leaves, an indirect source of cocaine, and was marketed as an energy rejuvenator. Unlike most patent medicines of its era, it actually did not contain alcohol. Some herbal preparations included laxatives, such as senna, or diuretics to give the compound some obvious physical effect. So mm -hmm. like if you take it, like something happens. So it feels, you feel the immediate effects and therefore think that it's working. So you might ask, 
how did these elixirs come to take hold in America? Well, patent medicines were the first major product that the advertising industry promoted. The idea of the medicine man of the 19th century was more of a salesman than a doctor, making wild claims and persuading alien citizens that his particular brand was the one that would cure them. These men set about their task with cleverness and zeal. One of the major contributions to the industry was the creation of bright, colorful labels that were designed to appeal to the target audience. Can you say branding? Mm-hmm. This type of branding set their product apart from their competitors. A number of American institutions owe their existence to the patent medicine industry, notably a number of older almanacs which were originally given away as promotional items by the patent medicine manufacturers. Popular patent medicine almanacs, which were free publications of 30 to 40 pages long that contained weather forecasts, horoscopes, and household and health advice. They offered abundant advertising for the sponsoring company's products. Giveaways such as a matchbook-style needle and thread case from the Lydia Pinkman Company, which was... A seller of ladies, lady pills. Lady pills. It's always go back to lady pills. <laughs> we're, all, we're also used to boost sales. I mean, <clears throat> so here's the thing. And they were pink? They were pink. That's just rude. I know. So rude. It's so rude and so sexist. But at the end of the day, if a woman's like, I need to buy some lady pills, the husband's going to be like, I don't know. Here's the money. Go away. Right? He doesn't yeah, want to talk yeah, about her lady. Yeah, yeah. He doesn't want to talk about her lady ailments. And if she gets to get, like, a little needle and thread, like, with it, she's going to be like, oh, my God, it's so awesome. You know? It's a great – it was, like, all these great marketing strategies. Like, we're going to give you this free thing that's just full of advertising. Perhaps the most successful industry that grew out of the business of patent medicine advertisements, though, was founded by William H. Gannett in Maine in 1866. There were very few circulating newspapers in Maine in that era, so Gannett founded a periodical – called Comfort, whose chief purpose was to propose the merits of Oxian, which was one of these medications that was made from the fruit of the baobab tree. An early pioneer in the use of advertising to promote patent medicine was New York businessman Benjamin Brandreth, whose vegetable universal pill eventually became one of the best-selling patent medicines in the United States. A congressional committee in 1849 reported that Brandreth was the nation's largest proprietary advertiser. Between 1862 and 1863, Brandreth's average annual income surpassed $600,000. For 50 years, Brandreth's name was a household word in the United States. Indeed, the Brandreth pills were so well known that they actually received mention in Herman Melville's classic novel, Moby Dick. Another publicity method, undertaken mostly by smaller firms, was... The Medicine Show, a traveling circus of sorts that offered vaudeville-style entertainments in a small scale and climaxed in a pitch for some sort of cure-all tonic. Muscle man acts were especially popular on these tours, for this enabled the salesman to tout the physical vigor that the product supposedly offered. The showman frequently employed shills, um, who stepped forward from the crowd to offer unsolicited testimonials about the benefits of the medicine. Often, this medication was actually being manufactured and bottled within the wagon in which the show traveled. The Kickapoo Indian Medicine Company became one of the largest and most successful medicine show operators. Their shows had an American Indian and Wild West theme. 
and employed many Native Americans as spokespeople. The idea of the medicine show lived in American folklore and in Western movies long after it had vanished from public life. So, like, I always think about in The Wizard of Oz, mm-hmm. and he, he's in the wagon. The he's the, one of the, the people. Cat, yeah. yeah, he's a medicine man. So I'm just going to – I'm going to go back to the – because the baobab tree really interests me. <laughs> and um, kind of – I was like, I never heard of that tree before. So I Googled imaged it. Mm-hmm. Have you ever seen what it looks like? Mm-mm. It looks like a 80-foot – carrot <laughs> that sprouted it is it's, look at this that's a huge baobab i know they're so big it just looks like a giant carrot that's i mean oh. it's a big tree and you can make a lot of medicine from it yeah yeah something you would definitely see in lion king yeah i'm sorry i'm sorry i was listening the entire time but i was like baobab tree Baobab tree. Yeah, look at this baobab tree. But for every boom, there must be a bust. And so it was with the patent medicine industry. Mm. I'm not surprised. It did not escape the public's eye that people were becoming dependent on these medications, and some were even dying. From the beginning, some physicians and medical societies were critical of patent medicines. They argued that the remedies did not cure illnesses and discouraged the sick from seeking legitimate treatments and caused alcohol and drug dependency. The temperance movement of the late 19th century provided another voice of criticism, protesting the use of alcohol in the medicines. By the end of the 19th century, Americans favored laws to force manufacturers to disclose the remedy's ingredients and to use realistic language in their advertising. Eventually, the media and other investigators began to publicize instances of death, addiction, and other hazards caused by these products. This was done with great risk to the writer and to the publication, as the newspaper industry relied heavily on patent medicines and their advertising dollars. In 1905, Samuel Hopkins Adams published an expose entitled The Great American Fraud in Collier's Weekly, and that led to the passage of the first Pure Food and Drug Act in 1906. This statute did not ban the use of alcohol, narcotics, and stimulants in medicines, but it did require them to be labeled as such, and curbed some of the more misleading, overstated, and fraudulent claims that appeared on labels. In 1936, the statute was revised to ban them, and the United States entered a a long period of ever more drastic reductions in the medications available unmediated by physicians and prescriptions. Morris Fishbein, editor of the Journal of uh, Journal of the American Medical Association, or JAMA, JAMA, if you know what JAMA is, who was active in the first half of the 20th century, based much of his career on exposing quacks and driving them out of business. The patent medicine makers moved from selling these elixirs to selling deodorants and toothpastes, which continued to use the same advertising techniques that had proven themselves for the elixirs. Surviving consumer products from the patent medicine era are still around, though. A number of brands of consumer products that date from the patent medicine era are still on the market and available today. While their ingredients have been changed from their original formulas, the claims made for their benefits have also been seriously revised. These brands include... Oh, no. Oh, no. (laughs) Anison. Bayer Aspirin. BC Powder. Doan's Pills. Goody's Headache Powder, Luden's Throat Drops, Milk of Magnesia, and Vicks Vaporub. Holy shit. So these are the ones that are still considered medicines. Um, So those are all still labeled as medications. You still get them at the CVS and Mm -hmm. the pharmacy aisle. 
But some of the consumer products that were once marketed as pet medicines have been repurposed and are now sold with no um, medicinal purposes. Things such as 7-Up, <laughs> Coca-Cola, <laughs> Dr. Pepper, Graham crackers, grape nuts, Pepsi-Cola. Graham crackers? You remember from the episode about... Oh, for... Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. For and Kellogg's. tonic water. That I, that I knew, and I don't understand why I got such a big hit. Just sugar water. Yeah. So that... That is the weird and wild tale of patent medicine, advertising, branding, and the reason why we have the FDA. Just another notorious narrative. Thank you so much for listening. If you're enjoying the podcast, there are a couple of things that you can do to help us out. You can leave a positive review wherever you're listening now. You can also go to patreon.com forward slash notorious narratives, where you can access content that is exclusive for our patrons. And remember, keep it weird and never stop exploring.